Good morning. It's good to worship with you this morning. My name is Mike Palumbo. I'm the pastor of Relational Discipleship. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Numbers 22, uh, 36 to 2312. So I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to that text. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, there is a pew Bible in front, and it's on page 131 in the pew Bible. Well, up until this point, we have been walking with Israel to the Promised Land. And this story has been told from the perspective of Israel. We've been, in one sense, with them in the pews, with them on the journey. And it's interesting, when we get to this section on Numbers 22, we're not seeing Israel from their perspective, from really an outsider's perspective. We're seeing what God is doing among another nation to accomplish His unfolding plan in order to ensure this journey goes well. And in doing this, we see a clash between King Balak of Moab and the king of creation. Their history is unfolding, and we see that they have very different visions of how the world should go in this earth. We see with King Moab that he wants to curse and destroy Israel, and the king of creation wants to bless. King Moab is doing this ultimately to preserve his own prosperity, his own progress. In this text this morning, we'll see God's kingdom agenda in the face of a clashing king and learn how do we trust and follow our king in our own country, in our own time. So hear now the reading of God's word from Numbers 22, verse 36 through 23, 12. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not sin to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Husseth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? 
Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word of God. It is surely sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts of man. It is our very life. It points us to the life giver. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to receive this word, to trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, and to follow your lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're wrapping up our 4th of July week. Uh, I'm sure many of us saw fireworks of various sorts and kinds. Uh, maybe you were like me, sitting behind a house, and fireworks are coming in front and behind, and you were conflicted uh, as to where to go and where to look. Uh, many of us were decked out in various uniforms of red, white, and blue, maybe house decor, uh, maybe even face paint. I'm not sure if uh, we have any face painters this morning. Uh, But this time of the year is very important. Uh, It's a time where we can celebrate God's goodness of bringing us to this country. We can show gratefulness for all the blessings and benefits that we have as a nation. And we can pursue our dreams in this country. This time can remind us that the Lord has leaded us to this particular place. uh, Just like he's led other people to other nations. We can be reminded that this is God's square inch He's given to us to seek the prosperity of people and places. This can be a missional reminder. But at its worst, the 4th of July can paint a very flowery picture of American history and our American present. We can see only the beauty and that can cause us to shut our eyes from the injustice, from the poor leadership decisions, or the immoral practice that sadly can characterize our country. As we shoot off fireworks, sing national anthems, and pledge allegiance to the flag with our hands over our heart, we can be developing too strong of a devotion and love for America. Our love for American prosperity and progress can become an ultimate love. And we need to be aware of this year in and year out. It can become one that we desire above all else. We can love America so much that we give to it all of our allegiance and our devotion. It can be the center of our worship. Our love for America can grow so strong that it won't be confronted or checked by any other voice, even the voice of God himself. This love for our American nation can not only make us feel superior to other nations, but even to feel superior to God himself, the king of all kings, when God has spoken by his word that's contrary to our belief and practice, we can ignore the king of kings and build and support a kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. So how do we as Christians live as citizens of our own country, fully committed and fully involved while embodying the values of the kingdom of God? How do we side with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when we are bombarded by all sorts of counter-kingdom messages? Well, this is a very relevant question in our text today. As the King of the nations, the King over all creation, confronts a King of a single nation. So what we must do is we must see who is our King. 
Who is this triune king who rules over all things? Well, first we must see that this king is the ruler over all nations. Now, there is no denying in this text that God is a universal ruler over all nations. We see God speaking to a foreign prophet, Balaam, in order to deliver a message to a foreign king, King Balak. God is not a tribal king who only cares about the activities of Israel. God has his eye on all humanity and his hand in every nation. God has always had a plan for all nations. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God created Adam and Eve to go to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth to create cultures all throughout the world in different places. They were to learn to love the Lord in these different environments to honor Him and to pursue His mission. And even after the fall and sin entered the world, God still has His eye on the nations. Not only in judgment, but also in blessing. In Genesis 12, 2-3, we see God clarifying His rule over the nations and how Israel fits into that rule. He says here, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord pours out His blessing on Abraham that this blessing would go out to every nation, every people group all around the world. We see here that Israel's relationship to other nations is one of blessing and not destruction. This is why this whole scene of Balak fearing the destruction from Israel is a bit odd when we look at the calling of Israel. King Balak has seen the ways that Israel was destroyed by, uh, the, or way that Israel destroyed other nations, Amorites and other kingdoms, and he fears that the same will happen to Moab. But if we go back to the story and we pay careful attention to the text, we'll see that Israel pursued peace with the Amorites and not destruction. If you look at Numbers 21-22, Moses says this, speaking to the king of the Amorites, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. The Israelites didn't even drink water. And we all need water, right? They didn't even drink water. They were just going to pass through this country to the land that God has prepared for them. But they were peacefully passing through, and King Sihon saw them coming through their territory. He marshaled his troops, and he fought against Israel. The Amorites sought to dishonor and to destroy Israel. So the Lord cursed the Amorites, and they defeated the Amorites. King Balak of Moab sees Israel as a conquest nation that actively destroys rather than blesses. This assumption that Israel will destroy Moab compels King Balak to turn their God against them, to curse them rather than bless them. This makes me wonder what our attitude is to nations around us. Do we have an attitude of blessing or one that looks more in line with destruction? Is our attitude one of loving our neighbor from different cultures, from different races and nationalities? Or is it one of apathy or even hatred? Do our neighbors assume that we flat out are against them? Or do they believe that we are for their welfare and their salvation in Jesus Christ? Now, look, we we definitely have a different lifestyle than many of our neighbors that don't trust in Jesus. 
But wasn't Jesus uh, a lover of the sinner? Didn't he spend time with sinners and enjoy meals with them? Wasn't Jesus identified as a friend of sinners? It is clear throughout the scriptures that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He sought the Roman soldier. He sought the Samaritan woman, the Jewish tax collector. Jesus is the light of the nations that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So then Jesus came to bless people, no matter their culture, their nationality, or their race. And so should we as his followers. If our king is a king who rules over all nations, it also means that the king rules over us, and not us over the king. No king can rule over this king of kings. In our text, King Balak wants to rule over God by getting him to curse Israel rather than bless. When Balaam concludes that he cannot curse this nation because God has determined to bless, Balak furiously responds, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have done nothing but bless them. In essence, King Balak looks at Balaam and God himself and says, You must give me what I want for the advancement of my kingdom. I'm saddened to say that in my own prayer life, I look more like, it looks more like I'm trying to rule over God rather than submitting to His rule. The Lord's Prayer begins with so much focus on God as King and His kingdom. And this is to direct us to trust the King and to make His kingdom priorities ours. But our Lord's Prayer sounds something more like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, my name is great. My reputation is most important. My kingdom come. Thy will be changed in heaven as I desire for me on earth. We tell the enthroned king of creation to bow to our small little kingdom of self. And this is the very thing that King Balak does as he approaches God in order to rule over the king of kings. I faced this struggle personally as I was single from age 18 to 27. Though I pray that God would bless me with a spouse, I saw everyone else getting married but me. These hopeful prayers turned into bitter grudges when I complained to God that He does not know what is best for me. I even self-righteously despised all my other friends that were getting married, thinking that I was more worthy to be married than them. I thought I had to rule over God in this area rather than trust God. As I waded through this confusing season of singleness, I struggled to make sense of the single life. I just wanted to move past the season and get on with it and get married, and then life will truly have meaning. But the Lord cared more about teaching me to find abiding joy in God rather than in a person. God was teaching me that I have a purpose and significant opportunity as a single person that I would not have as one who is married. I started to ask, how can I make the most of my time in this season to serve my neighbors, to work hard, and to do ministry? I started to taste what Paul says about the joys of singleness, that they're not anxious about the concerns of family life, but anxious about the things of the Lord and pursuing His call. See, singleness is meaningful in itself, but this perspective of contentment in God and commitment to God's kingdom mission is absolutely crucial for me to love my wife, Whitney, now. 
So what does your prayer life reveal about who you believe rules over the nations? Trust the king who rules over the nations. He is good and a much better ruler than us. Next, we see that this king of creation speaks his word. This king is not an ignorant and passive king who has no clue what he wants or expects from his followers. The leader who does not speak what he does not know or doesn't have a plan is a flimsy leader who we should not follow. In the opposite way, he is not a harsh and silent king who knows what he wants but won't tell us. He's not some sort of tormenting leader who wants us to guess what he's thinking. This only leads to bitterness and not to trust. Our God is a king who knows all the ways his creation works and has written the manual on human flourishing. He has clarified all we need to know to trust his good character, to find salvation in Jesus Christ, and to follow his lead in this world. He not only speaks to individual persons, but even to societies of people. What's interesting is when we see King Balak speak, we see nothing more than his insecurities. Look at the text. He says this, Did I not send you to call you? Did I, why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? You can just taste the offense that comes from King Balak's voice. Do you not know who I am? I'm the king of Moab. You must listen to me. And how could you be so late? The prophet Balaam reveals to us that the word of the king of kings has ultimate authority, much greater authority than the king of Balak. Look at verse 38. He says, Behold, I have come to you. Relax. (laughs) Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. He cannot speak anything he or King Balak wants God to say. He must speak only the word that God has put in his mouth. And you know, it should give us great confidence And even comfort to know that the God who created the world has spoken in clear terms that we can grasp. This mode of putting his word in the mouth of the prophet is one of God's primary ways that he speaks. 2 Peter 1.20-21 reminds us that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We trust and submit to the words of the King of Kings, not only because He's Creator, but because God the Holy Spirit carried these prophets through the whole way of giving us God's Word. The Holy Spirit has written the story and their history has determined their personality. The Holy Spirit has given the words of God into the minds and the mouths of the prophets. And the Holy Spirit guided their hands to writing these very words down for us. And so the Word of God is trustworthy. It is infallible and errant and has ultimate authority. King Balak tries to do many things in order to twist the words of God the King. He begins to honor Balaam with various delicacies, performing religious rituals of sacrifice. He cooks up a feast for Balaam's enjoyment. And he then takes Balaam to a place called Bamoth Baal. In the actual Hebrew, this means the high places of Baal. This is basically a temple of worship, a place where Baal was sacrificed to. Possibly Balak was trying to confuse the frequencies of the God of Baal and the one true God of creation, twisting the message. 
Finally, Balaam sacrifices a bull and a ram on seven different altars. It seems here that even Balaam gives in to worshiping other gods, maybe to get a different message from the God who revealed to him his true message of blessing. Even with this spending of resources and this religious ritual, God the King consistently revealed his word. And he says that he will only bless the Israelites and not curse. Now, in our own nation, as we're wrestling through various decisions and policies, there's a lot on the table even now as we speak. And the question as we wrestle with these decisions and these policies, as we listen to the news and the culture around us, is what drives our convictions the most? Is it the ideas of our political party? Is it the heritage of family beliefs? Or is it the word of God, our King? Whether you identify as a Republican or a Democrat or some other party, there should be times when God's Word causes you to take a different stance in your political party. There will be times when our loyalty to the Word of God will force us to take a different view from family, friends, and even the leadership of our country. In Psalm 46, the psalmist warns Israel not to trust in princes because they have no ultimate power to save. They run out of breath. And their plans perish. But the king of creation is our help and our hope. So we look to the scriptures not only for personal practice of holiness, but also for public well-being of societies. This is God's world. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 tells us that the scripture gives us all things we need for faith and life, either by direct statements or values that we draw from the scriptures. So we can apply this to our society's questions, no matter how difficult or deep they are. And even this question of asylum-seeking immigrants. The first question we have to say, is there anything in the Bible that says anything regarding asylum-seekers? Those from other nations that are fleeing dangerous circumstances and looking for refuge. Leviticus 19, 33-34 says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We should not treat strangers wrongly because they have already been wronged enough. I mean, this is the very reason why these strangers in this text have left their country and are looking for a place of refuge. And ultimately, we could say this, that this is true not only for the strangers and others around, but this is also true for us. As we are outside of the family of God, wandering, separated from God, in need of a Savior and refuge in Jesus Christ. Israel was not only to do them wrong, but to welcome them as natives, and even to love them as themselves. But notice, again, that he clarifies this in light of the gospel. The Israelites also were strangers. They were oppressed by a harsh ruler in Egypt. But God delivered them and gave them refuge. And we too were alienated from God, have been brought in from strangers to family members through Jesus' sacrifice. Look, the reality is that this requires profound wisdom. And we need to regularly pray for our country as decisions are made about this. I realize that national security is a real concern. And faithful Christians will differ in many different ways as to who and how we welcome strangers. 
But this must not diminish our calling to bless the nations and to welcome the stranger. This must inform how we value and love asylum seekers. Last of all, we must see that the king is a king who blesses his people. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves cautions us from seeing God exclusively as a king. If we see God only as a king, we may think that the only thing that's important is obeying the king's rules. Salvation may simply become avoiding a rule-making consequence, and growth may simply become rule-following submission. We could possibly relate to God simply as a cosmic cop. He may may either punish us for rule-breaking or forgive us for our transgression. The problem with this view of God is it misses the love that God has for us. And we are to have for God in this relationship. It misses the relationship. If we see God as a cosmic cop, we may break less rules, and we may be grateful, but it will only be for a while. We won't truly love this God. When Whitney and I bought a new vehicle, uh, this is a pastoral confession, all right? So this is a chance for me to say, I am like you, okay? Uh, so we bought this vehicle, and we were in Stanton, Virginia, uh, where we bought it. So Whitney drove the new car home, and I drove the vehicle that had the burned-out taillight. So we were moving along. I was eager to get home. It was about an hour-and-a-half drive. And on the way home, there were two cops waiting for me uh, just down the road on 29. One of those cops decided to join me on the journey, and he came beside me, and he pulled me over. And, uh, and I was convinced he was pulling me over for the taillight. It was because I had a burning out taillight. And he says to me, uh, son, do you realize how fast you were going? Uh, he told me I was going 84 and a 70. And uh, he also informed me that not only was I speeding, but my taillight was burned out. And I, I knew that. And my inspection was two months late. With all of these accusations, my heart started to sink a little bit. And I was starting to calculate how much this punishment might cost. (laughs) Uh, He checked my license and he came back with great news of mercy. Since I had not had a ticket in over 15 years, so please obey the laws of the land, uh, he was merciful. He didn't give me a speeding ticket and nor did he write a ticket for my taillight being burned out. He only gave me a ticket for the inspection. After this happened, the whole way home, I was very grateful for this cop. But you know, I have not spoken with him since. I cannot say I truly love this cop because there's no relationship. He simply forgave me for my role breaking. But he wasn't God. He wasn't my father. He wasn't one who ultimately loved me. This king of creation not only rules over nations, he not only speaks his word, but he also blesses his people. Out of the abundance of his love, he seeks the welfare and flourishing of people, even though they are rule breakers. We have seen numerous rule breaking scenarios throughout the series of numbers. We've seen discontent complaining. We've seen rebelling against established leaders. We've seen breaking Sabbath commandments and idol worship. Surely this people has forfeited their right for a blessing from this king. But the reality is, that's not the case. It should have been easy for King Balak to convince the king to curse them. I mean, could you imagine all the things he could have said? Look at these people. They're pathetic. Just get rid of them. But nevertheless, this king of love 
is best known for his steadfast commitment to the well-being of his people, even though they are rule breakers. Balaam declares two aspects of this blessing. First, he says that the nation of Israel is a people with a dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. This points to the blessing of election. Israel is alone in the sense that God has chosen this nation at this time to be a nation that receives his love and his direct and revealed leadership in redemptive history. And why did he do this? Well, Deuteronomy 7-8 makes it very clear. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you up out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He also demonstrates this blessing to fruitfully multiply Israel. He says that he will multiply them. He will count the dust of Jacob and the number the fourth part of Israel. God promised to multiply the descendants of Abraham as the grains of sand. And here he is promising to bring about this fruitfulness in God's timing. The good news of the gospel is that God is a God who continues to bless in his faithfulness even though we are unfaithful. Even though he disciplines us in our transgressions, he will not remove from us his steadfast and faithful love. He will not violate his end of the covenant to bless, to care for, to carry us on to the very end of all history. This is only possible because Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, has bore our sin and curse on the cross. The blood that was poured out from this cross of Christ, it flows as a deep river of forgiveness to all who trust in Jesus. Therefore, I implore you to trust in this King. He rules, He speaks, and He blesses. Toward the end of the oracle of Balaam, he responds to this blessing King by saying that He will die with the upright, and their end will be His end. This is what it means to embrace the cross of Christ to save us in our sin. Trusting in Jesus requires a death. We must see the death that we deserve for rebelling against the King of Kings. Then we must see the death that Christ took on the cross as He died and bore our sin. Seeing the love of King Jesus dying on the cross, it frees our wills and it moves us to trust and follow this King. We die to ourselves. We die to our efforts to fix our sin and to lead our lives our way. We simply cling to Christ, saving and leading love. And His end will be our end. A death that leads to resurrection, renewal, and everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You, our gracious and great King, that You came in Jesus Christ, that You died on that cross, that You lead us as Your people. O oh God, grant us wisdom that we would turn and trust in Jesus, that we would follow You in all areas of life, in personal piety and the public good. Pray, O oh God, that You would lead us to Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.